You're listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. do following retirement from a successful career of 26 years in the Navy, which began at the U.S. Naval Academy. You enroll at the International Yacht Restoration School, otherwise known as Iris School of Technology and Trades, in Newport, Rhode Island, where you acquire a whole new set of skills in marine systems. You and your wife then buy a catamaran, sell everything you own, move your family aboard, and go cruising. That's what Glenn Robbins and his family did. Glenn was a classmate of mine from high school who I'd not seen in over 30 years when, in the summer of 2019, he walked into our shop. Glenn and his family had arrived in Newport on their, new to them, Leopard 46 catamaran. As you'll hear from our talk, Glenn has an infectious level of enthusiasm and energy which he channeled into impressive levels of preparation and planning. He also offers us a dose of reality about living and cruising aboard, and it's not all cocktails and sunsets. He takes us on their journey from purchasing the boat in Florida and bringing it up to Newport. They then brought it down to Virginia, where they joined the Salty Dog Rally to the Caribbean. After some time in the islands, they made the passage across to Panama and through the canal. They cruised on the western side of Panama and then transited back through the canal, where their ultimate destination was Florida. All of this takes place while a global pandemic was unfolding. Glenn gives us a detailed picture on everything from solving problems and repairs to the history of the places they visit and the excitement of fishing off a catamaran. This episode is a bit longer than I typically post, but Glenn's ability to convey their adventure is so rich in content and well-described, there really was not much I could remove. If you're considering setting off on your boat for an extended period of time, I think this is a worthwhile listen. You can learn more about their adventure by visiting svfearless.com. That's SV as in sailing vessel, fearless.com. And for more information about Iris School of Technology and Trades, visit iyrs.edu. My sincere thanks to Glenn for being so generous with his time on this. I hope you enjoy. So I guess we'll start with you had a career in the Navy. I did. So, of course, you and I went to high school together. And um, after high school, yeah, I went on to uh, the Naval Academy down in Annapolis and then uh, had a 26-year career in the Navy. So um, when that was done, we were looking at our options for uh, join the workforce right away or try to do something amazing. And we chose the amazing bit, but it, it was it, it involved stepping through a significant amount of fear to get there. And ultimately, mm-hmm. we named our boat Fearless because it was a reminder of what we had to do and the steps that we had to take to get to that point where we are willing to commit. And it's not easy. Uh, It it really is not an easy decision to make when you start talking about separating yourself from all of your worldly possessions and, you know, getting rid of most of your stuff, if that's what you have to do, which is what we did, sold cars, sold, you know, furniture, houses, whatever, just everything, had a fire sale and said, okay, it's (laughs) it's time to just go. So that's what we did. Had you cruised as a family before? Never. No, not even a charter or a a family holiday. Nope. Uh, We had, we spent one long weekend on a boat with uh, a a friend of ours in Italy 
Uh, we lived there for six years towards the end of my naval career. And uh, we met a, a gentleman who was a carbon fiber engineer. He was also an America's Cup sailor at one point back in the uh, 90s. Mm -hmm. And he took us out for a weekend. He had a, a semi-custom Melius 46, which is an Italian design. It's a, it's a, a mostly racing, but somewhat, you know, a little bit cruising boat. But uh, we went out to Vento Tene and uh, you know, right in the uh, Tyrrhenian Sea. Uh, it was only a long weekend and there were 14 of us on board. It was amazing. Uh, but it, it, that, was, that was it. That was the only experience we had as a family cruising or doing any mm -hmm. kind of sailing. And how, how did you decide to go to, you said you didn't go the corporate route. How did you decide to go to Iris? Um, so I was in Newport for my last assignment in the Navy. And I was, I just took a walk down Thames street one day. And I, I remember reading something about Iris. I didn't really know about the school. Uh, so I decided to just take a walk. I remember seeing the, the yard arm and the, the cross tree, you know, the, the, the mass that they had out front with the flag. So I stopped into the uh, Iris parking lot and uh, walked in and talked to the admissions folks. And then I got invited to an open house, which I went to, and, and uh, I was just so impressed. I had met a number of people throughout my life in the Navy who had really amazing skills. And I'm talking about life skills, like, you know, could, could fix and paint a car, could make incredible wood carving or, you know, uh, uh, micro lathe uh, products and you know, it's stuff like that. That just, I've always been a, an admirer of craft work. Uh -huh. And when I stepped into Iris, I thought, yeah, this is, this is what I, th this is amazing. Um, it was a chance to work with my hands, a chance to do some of that craftsman like work that I had always admired so much, but never really had a pathway to get there. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity. But then I stepped back from it and I said, no, 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 I, I can't do this. I, I have a family. I, I need to provide for them. I need to do what's you know, do what all my other peers were doing. And it was actually my wife who encouraged me. She said, no, you want this. You need this. This is something that would be very good for you. And there were some other veterans in the program in the class ahead of me. And I had a long talk with one of them who was a retired army officer. And he said, he looked at me, he said to me, dude, it's going to be okay. And I said, <laughs> oh, well, maybe it is. You know, he literally said that to me. He's like, dude, it's going to be all right. And I said, wow. Nice. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe it is. And maybe we just need to let go hmm. and be okay with that decision. And shortly after that, we had a conversation amazing conversation with good friends of ours who are actually here in Anacortes, Washington, where we are now. And they were one of the influences uh, for us to come here. And uh, one of them looked at me and she held her hands out in front of her like this. And she said, she clenched her hands up tightly. And she said, if you're holding on to everything in your life, there's no place for anyone to put something into your hands. You, there's no landing pad for anything. You need to be able to open up your hands and let go. And then you'll be amazed at what fills your hands when you do that. And it was, you know, it was an analogy, right? I mean, it was, she was just, sure. it was, but it was so powerful. And it was one of those moments where we said, wow, that it, it, everything is going to be okay. If you're just willing to let go and mm. step through the fear. And that's what, ended up being the, you know, sort of the, the final tipping point for us to say, okay, we're going to do this and it's going to turn out okay. And 
by this, I mean, go through trade school and then see where that leads. We didn't have an outcome at that point. We didn't know mm. where it was going to lead. And we didn't, at that point, we hadn't decided if we were even going to go sailing or not. Oh, okay. So you hadn't decided, okay, I'm going to do this training no. and then get a boat. No. No, it was, let's try this on for size. And mm. then if things are going okay, yeah, let's get a boat. Because we had been looking at it. I mean, there were a number of YouTube influencers by this point that we had been looking at. Um, yeah. Some of the ones who had been doing it from the get-go. Um, Sailing the Vagabond, uh, Gone with the Winds. I mean, the, a lot of people watch those those YouTube mm. channels. And I, I just remember sitting on my couch going, I, I want to be a guy sitting on my couch watching videos. I want to be out there doing it. <laughs> but, but, I mean, honestly, Chris, how do you do that? I mean, how do you just yeah. decide? And then we had these these sort of esoteric conversations about, well, who are these people who just, you know, burned the farm and just, you know, walked off and, you know, bought a sailboat and sailed over the horizon. And it seemed, you know, on paper so easy, but when you actually are talking about taking your kids and, you know, your wife and, 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 you know, burning the farm and leaving everything behind, it, it's a big decision to make. And I knew that if I didn't go to Iris, we wouldn't do it. And that mm. was one of the reasons why, you know, it was sort of in that in the back of my mind of if I don't get those skills that Iris imparts on you. Um, and I, I went through the Marine Systems Program, which is uh, un, was unfortunately only six months long. I was hoping it would be nine. But it, 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 I mean, when class ended in six months, I'm not ready for it to end yet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. I'm having too much fun. It was it was amazing. Such a great experience. And and. I kept coming home every day from that. And, uh, you know, my wife, Andy would say, well, how, you know, how was class? What'd you learn today? And I said, well, if I learned one thing today, it's don't buy a boat. It's a marine yeah. systems, uh, you know, basically a repair class. And, uh, right. you know, we're learning all about how to, um, to fix all these systems that break. And, you know, the instructor was telling us, well, you know, I'd replace this stuff on age alone after just five to seven years. And like, wow. Oh, sure. All right. All right. Yeah. Boats bad. No, no way. <laughs> no, no boats. <laughs> so, uh, but at the end of it, um, I was still applying for jobs, uh, looking at jobs in the government sector, um, mm. And none of it panned out. And I think that was almost a sign. Uh, and at that point, we said, all right, you know what? Let's let's do this. Uh, my surviving parent, which is my mother, had just passed away from um, a, a year-long battle with cancer. And I remember looking at her as she was, um, you know, in the, the final week of her life, thinking, what if I'm there and mm. I never did this? Right. And what right. if I just worked? And then at the end of it, uh, suddenly I, I succumbed to cancer and died. And that happens to a lot of people mm. where your life ends a lot earlier than you think it's going to. And we wanted to give our children this experience. Because, I mean, there are a lot of dynamics going on here, right? I mean, the, the, the oceans are changing. Climate is changing. We are seeing that the frequency and ferocity of hurricanes are, are increasing and uh, we we also knew that you know the, the amount of plastics that we're jumping in the ocean is is increasing, uh, and to to serious seriously detrimental impacts. And that was another goal. We said, well, what happens if there is no ocean? And mm -hmm. I'm I mean I, that's a bit of an overstatement, right? But but sea life is being impacted by human influence, and we wanted to show them that. We wanted to get out there and show the kids 
what the ocean is really like, the magic of it, the power of it. Mm. And so that was um, that was one of the influences that drove us. And you know that with the passing of of my mom, my, my dad had, had uh, passed away uh, back in 2007, and and so just looking at that and thinking about life and what it all means, we we boiled this all down to two factors that everyone is familiar with, and that's time and money. You can always make more money, but you can't make more time. Right. And we just that was something that that drove us, and we looked at that equation and said, okay, how, so how do we get this done? I now, we made the decision for me to go to Iris. And that was, that was an important first step that would lead to the decision to go sailing. And then we decided, you know what? Okay, I fine. We have these skills. Let's just do this. Let's just commit all of our resources to this and make it happen. And mm. we'll just live with whatever consequences result from this good or bad. We're going to be okay with it. And so we did. Wow. Yeah. And how did you, what made you choose the boat you ch chose and, and how did, ah. it, how did that come about? <laughs> Was that planned uh, so, or? <laughs> ooh, yeah. Well, not by me. So um, my wife was convinced that we, we wanted a catamaran to cruise. And I said, uh, I'm not a catamaran sailor. I've never, you know, I, I grew up hmm. coastal cruising in, in Massachusetts and, and Rhode Island. And, you know, we had a monohull, 35 foot monohull. That was, you know, that was a, that was a big boat for the 1980s. And right. uh, she said, no, I think uh, I've, I've looked at a lot of different boats and I think we want a Leopard 46. Well, that's said, specific. Yeah, it was very specific. <laughs> it was. And I said, uh, okay, um, right. Uh, that's a big boat. That's two 46 foot boats glued to each other with a, you know, a, <laughs> a living room. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, we started, said, all right, fine. Let's look for one. And there were none to be found. I mean, they're, mm. they're, they're just, it's a, it's a boat. That's a pretty hot commodity. They have a kind of a cult following to them. They were a very well-designed and well-built boat, uh, especially the, the, the later runs of them when they had worked out some of the kinks, the, uh, the mm. later years, they only made it for four years. And so finding one that was not a beaten up, used up, uh, charter boat, former charter boat was really, really hard. And it, we started to become disheartened with the search because finding a good boat is difficult. There mm. are boats out there, but finding a good boat is hard. And so we decided to go on a fact finding mission down to Fort Lauderdale, which is where all the catamarans are in you know, South Florida. And flew down there and we were so discouraged by what we saw. Just the, the boats that were on the market were just in such a, uh, a sad state of affairs. And then I went and um, actually took a Leopard 46 that was, it was the only one available in the United States, the continental United States. And I took that one to survey. I said, all right, you know what? I, I flew down to see it first and I went, ah, no way. And then we looked at it and, and Andy kept saying, I really think we want this Leopard 46. And so I went, all right, fine, I'll take this to survey. I'll, I'll, I'll see this one through. And it was a disaster. The survey was a mess. It, it turned up all kinds of problems. And uh, one of the engines failed. And I mean, it's like a nightmare day for the owner. Mm -hmm. I felt really bad for him. Uh, but so we went what back. Year, what year board. is this? What timeline? This, what year? Right. So this is 2019. So okay. this is be, this is pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the catamaran market, though, was still really hot mm. and just and, and getting hotter. Uh, so we hit it at a point when it was not. Um, you know, people weren't giving boats away like two, three years ago or earlier than that, you know, you could get a boat that was, 
probably fifty, eighty thousand dollars cheaper from what they were going for now. So we got discouraged and went back to the drawing board. We hired a, a boat broker at that point uh, and said, okay, we need to find a boat. And mm. it, eventually um, Andy just got sick and tired of waiting for things to come our way. And she joined the Leopard Catamaran Owners Group. She joined mm -hmm. the Leopard 46 Catamaran mm -hmm. Owners Group. She shot out an email to the entire group and said, I'm looking for a Leopard 46. She gave them the backstory. We're a military family. We just retired. We want to take our kids, show them the ocean. And she shot that out. And literally within a day or two, we got a reply back from this guy who said, I love your story. Wow. If it's the right, I have a boat. I'm, I'm thinking about selling, not convinced. If it's the right boat for you and the right price for me, let's talk. Mm. And it turned out that it was a 2010 Leopard 46 owner's version that had been absolutely tricked out and absolutely pampered by the previous owners. They loved the boat. They treated it like their child. And the earlier versions, the earliest versions of the Leopard 46 had no access to the helm station from the cockpit. You had to walk out and up the starboard side to get to the helm station. You couldn't just access it directly. And that was a, that was the design. And it, it was, it wasn't, I want to say it's a design flaw, but it was a limitation that we were not willing to, to live with. Is that what made it the owner's version you, you referred no. to as an owner? No, the owner's version is all the layout inside. So the, oh, okay. the, the charter versions of the Leopard 46 and most catamarans are four cabin, four head. So for gotcha. all of the different guests, um, yep. the, the cockpit configuration changed in, I believe the late 2008 model so they only ran this boat from 2008 to 2012 and the the earliest models had you know again no access as if it were going to be purposely built for the charter fleet and then mm -hmm. they started making versions where they had a staircase that or a little you know ladder that went up to the helm station it's a semi-raised helm station on the starboard side of the uh the cabin trunk and we for safety reasons i did not want the kids having to walk you know out and then up the starboard side to get to the helm station. I want an easy access for all right. watchstanders to get back and forth. So anyways, we were looking for that specific boat. And it's amazing. It's kind of like the job search. You know, when you're looking for a job, uh, people tell you to be very, very specific about what you're asking for. Mm. And it was a lot easier for us to find a boat when we, when we took that approach and said, I want a Leopard 46. I would prefer an owner's version. It has to be within that four-year model run, one that was built after they started, you know, they redesigned the cockpit. Right. And then beyond that, we had some flexibility because we had to. But anyways, we came back, com coming back to this boat, it was the 2010 owner's version, and it had just been recapitalized. It, they, the owner had put on new standing rigging, new sails, new uh, brand new lithium batteries, put on the rely on um, lithium iron phosphate batteries, 1200 amp hours worth. Wow. I mean, ice, ice maker. I mean, it, it was, uh, we had uh, almost 2000 Watts of solar panels and it, the boat was just pristine, low engine hours. We couldn't believe it. Yeah. And it was, it was a little bit above our budget. And we said, Oh, Oh boy, what do we do here? And then we came back to that time or money. This boat was ready to get underway. And a lot of listings will tell you, you know, boat is sail away ready, right? And it's mm. not. This one actually was. And we we 
five days after we took possession of the title, we were underway in the Eastern Atlantic or the Western Atlantic, excuse me, going up the uh, Eastern seaboard from Florida to Rhode Island. Wow. When did you take possession of her? Um, So this is how fast this happened, Chris. We sent the email out on July 2nd and got contact with the owner on July 3rd. By July 31st, we were owners of that boat. Oh, wow. It was insanely (laughs) fast. And so things happened very quickly. Andy and I flew down to Florida on uh, July 20th, and the owner was very specific. He said, look, if you come down here and we go through the the boat, it had been put up in Fort Pierce, Florida, and it was strapped down for hurricane season um, per his insurance requirements. And he mm-hmm. said, if we if we build this boat out and float it, and then you decide you don't want it, you know, all of that cost is on you. I said, okay, I'm, but he but he said, I'm very confident that you will want this boat mm. because we have taken good care of it. And I and, and oh by the way, he was a retired marine. <laughs> and my recommendation to anyone out there is, buy a boat, buy one from a retired marine because. They are absolutely meticulous with the de- yes. level of detail they put into things. And that's true with their training and that's true with um, how they live their lives in most cases. So mm. uh, that was a, I was, and so, and we had the military to military relationship. So there was this, this underpinning the trust that went into it and the veteran to veteran um, sale process made it very, very easy. And that would come mm. back to us again when we sold the boat in uh, this, this past June. Right. So, yeah. Wow. And so when you took possession of it, you then decided you, you knew you were coming up to the Northeast. We knew. So now remember it's July uh, 31st. Right. And we, our first day of boat ownership was August 1st, 2019. And we are about to enter the heart of hurricane season and the boat is sitting in Fort Pierce, Florida. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) So because we are so new to cruising, um, I'll back up one step here and say that we had hired cruising coaches. And if there's one thing that I would tell any new cruisers or, or, or cruisers who are, or people who are thinking about going into that lifestyle, time and money, we hired cruising coaches to help us shortcut a lot of the decisions and a lot of the processes that, that tend to trip up new cruisers. I mean, a lot of people will buy a boat and they'll get to know it over the course of a year or five years. And then they'll go sail it when they're when they're, I guess they're most comfortable. We didn't have that luxury, so we thought, all right, how do we shortcut these processes? And 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 the, the model of hiring a coach is so beneficial. Um, professional athletes do it, right? I mean, mm. Tom Brady, <laughs> Michael Jordan, all the greats of all mm. the greatest of all time, Katie Ledecky, you know, the <laughs> Michael Phelps, all of them. They became great because they had coaches who knew how to push them in the right ways. Right. And we hired Jamie and B and Gifford, who had twice circumnavigated the world with their children on a Stevens 47 monohull. And uh, they were fantastic. Um, they only take a few clients, uh, but we happened to be one of them. And we had a great relationship with them. And they really helped us sort through like I would look at a listing and go, you know, hey Jamie, check out this boat. And you go, like, ah, no, look at that. You know, like, check out the. Right. You can see the stitching on the sails coming off, and you know the 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 you know this is wrong. And you know, look at the windlass and look at the chain. And like, I, well, I didn't even see that. Like, okay, mm, yeah. So it it was and but and all virtually. He did all of this virtually. So so we had the coaches in our corner, and they helped us um, 
they helped us get to that point. We found the boat ourselves, but they helped us vet it, I guess, mm-hmm. and then help us through the negotiation for buying it. Uh, and then one of the things that we did was hire a captain to help us deliver the boat because here we were brand new. We left the kids up in Massachusetts, flew down to Florida, and then Andy and I sailed the boat north with uh, Gray Harker, who was a, a delivery skipper from Harker's mm-hmm. Island, North Carolina. If you've ever sailed up and down the East Coast, you've sailed right by Harker's Island. So yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, great, great guy. And, and uh, we, yeah, we, six days uh, you know, up the Gulf Stream and around Cape Hatteras and those little sporty going around Hatteras and just with the thunderstorms and stuff. So that was our sort of welcome to the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rest of the trip uh, was, um, was uneventful hooked a huge yellowfin tuna and had it right up against the boat. You know, like, I'm like, wow, sailing is great. You know, just throw a line in the water. And, <laughs> you know. But we were right off uh, Nags Head, North Carolina, and it was the right time of year. And the tuna were migrating or, you know, certainly sure. working their way up the Gulf Stream. And I was like, oh, we didn't, we didn't boat them, of course. Right. We got them alongside the boat. And it took me 45 minutes to get this grand piano feeling fish up against the boat. Wow. And uh, he took one look at the boat, dove under it, broke the leader off on the rudder or the prop, and, and it was See gone. Ya. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> gone. Like, oh! <laughs> but it, that was our, our introduction to cruising. And, and uh, it was a good start, but it was also, you know, with the, the, the weather going around Cape Hatteras, Jamie Gifford had told us, you know, just beware, capes and headlands have their own weather. So mm. you might leave on a good forecast, but capes and headlands don't pay attention to the forecast they have their own influences and then therefore produce their own weather patterns and currents and everything else and he was right it was it was pretty sporty going around hatteras and then once we got past that it was fine wow yeah and then you came right into newport or did you stop yeah came came right into newport and then uh walked into uh newport nautical supply (laughs) hadn't hadn't seen you in 30 years i know yeah that was a surprise I think I had heard that you had gone. Oh, I know. I, I saw, I think I get email from Iris and I had seen that you had been there and maybe presented, a, you'd been presented with some award or something for maybe graduation. And I, I remember flipping through the, the photos saying, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they were updating their, um, I didn't get an award for anything, I, but they were updating their um, student outreach videos and content and so on. And I had written some blogs for the school from the veteran perspective, because I was so impressed with the program there. I mean, Iris is, it holds a very special place in my heart, Mm. uh, especially after being um, on the water full time with uh, a 46 foot catamaran where we had two diesel engines, we had a diesel generator, we had all of the, what I would call quality of life uh, systems as well. So that, think of those as your alternating current systems on board the boat, air conditioning, ice maker, mm-hmm. uh, you know, additional refrigeration if you have that, but you know, all of your um, uh, microwave, anything that plugs into a, a washing machine, and then all of the life support systems. So water maker, uh, and then all of your propulsion systems and, and uh, uh, sanitation and everything else. So the, all of those systems, I touched every single system on the boat. And I did it with the confidence of a person who had gone through a program like Iris. And that was what, you know, if there's one piece of advice that I would give to people who are thinking about taking off and going cruising is that it really, it is, is to your benefit 
hmm. to take even a, a couple of weekend workshops. But if you can go through a program, a six month program like Iris, and they are around the country, they have them even out here in Anacortes, Washington, University of Washington has some programs out here that they run. But uh, the learning the tradecraft, even if you never touch a wrench on your boat and never fix anything, you can at least troubleshoot the systems and understand them. Sure. Because understanding them before you operate, especially when you get into that blue water environment, you've got to know what you're talking about and know what you're doing because mm. the ocean is remarkably unforgiving. And it's right. also ruthless in ferreting out any kind of weakness at all in your in your plan, in your boat, in your hardware, in your systems. It does not care. It is absolutely ruthless and efficient and brutal at exposing yeah. any weakness. You know, you, you leave a line dangling over the side, what, anything. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it will find it and exploit it. So absolutely. Iris, yeah. yeah, so Iris was, uh, um, I, I was so enthusiastic about the program that I wrote a number of blogs uh, so, you know, encouraging other veterans to consider this decision not, maybe not a marine trade school but you know just a trade school because uh, it, it it was not the um the, the financial um pit that i thought it would be like you know i, I you know, i'm not earning an income uh and i'm going to school but it, it never it was only six months so we were able to survive mm -hmm. that just fine but it it saved us so much money and time later on down the road when we kept the boat just running perfectly well, yeah, you're, you're, you're on your mechanic, you know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I used to joke when we were on the boat that you know I was the, the chief engineer and my wife was the operations officer and she mm -hmm. just handles logistics beautifully. She she just can solve getting, you know, if, if I was troubleshooting a system and identified the part we needed, she could make, she could connect the dots from where it was to where we needed it to, to be mm -hmm. and it would get there. So it was a really good balance. Did you practice, I only asked this question because I had two friends that operated like this. One was a delivery I did where the, the captain said, or the skipper said, everybody's going to shower at least once a day, unless it's just not possible due to weather. The other was uh, a friend who was in the Coast Guard and he was telling me how they ran every piece of equipment every day. And the logic was, you're touching it. You know it works, and you're 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 cycling. With the case with the water maker, he wanted to make sure that thing was constantly in operation. He didn't want it to sit. That was the yeah. point. Yeah, that was a challenge for us, especially the, the water maker is a is a great system to to focus on because when we were on the east coast um, in Newport, we didn't we were hooked up to shore water, so um, we didn't use the water maker. And then as we made our way down the East Coast, especially when we got to the Chesapeake, we went to the Annapolis Boat Show and we were there for a solid month on a mooring ball. And the amount of, of uh, contaminants in the water, and there was one point during the powerboat show that there was a, a huge diesel spill. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not making water with this. We were running no. jugs into the town dock in Annapolis. And I knew that that water maker was just sitting there and it just, it was a, it was a source of stress, but you, I mean, I, I'm not going to turn it on in, sure, those, right. in those conditions. So well, um, we should have, yeah. in hindsight, in over those couple months, we should have pickled it. Um, we ran it sparingly, but then when we needed it, when we were offshore on our way down to Antigua mm -hmm. uh, in November of 2019, I had a hard time getting it started again. Mm. And but that it was an interesting story, if you don't mind me. Um, no. 
just sharing that. So just quickly filling in the gaps, we, we bought the boat in July, so end of July, sailed it to Newport, and we arrived August 11th, 2019, stayed up there for about six weeks. And then once Hurricane Dorian had gone by, we saw our window to get south before the nor'easters start setting in in right. October. So we, we ran south uh, down Long Island Sound, stopped in uh, Port Washington for a few days, ran and did some touristy stuff in the city, and then went through the East River uh, by Manhattan. And that was one of the highlights of our mm -hmm. entire cruising experience was going down the East River. It was an amazing experience. One of the most um, challenging from a tide planning perspective. And I think I was oh, yeah. the pilot, the, 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 <laughs> tide, the tide book. I, I think I, I ran the numbers, I, I must have been 50 times. And then right. the day of, I was like, you know, stopwatch under the bridges. We have this much time to get to the next bridge. And then I planned it out you know, to the absolute second and it all worked out. So, hmm. um, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> luck favors the prepared, I guess. But you know, right. I was so nervous about getting through Hellgate, at, you know, slack water. It just, yeah. So we, um, so we went down uh, through New York, um, and then continued on to Cape May and then up the uh, Delaware River through the C&D Canal down to Annapolis and then down to Hampton, Virginia, and then joined the Salty Dog Rally uh, to leave November 2019 to jump down to the Caribbean. Oh, and wow. so in all that time, we didn't really use the water maker. And so we're, I, we brought extra crew on board for the passage. It was a 12-day passage, 1,600 nautical miles. And by day eight, you know, going back to your statement about the captain authorizes a shower for everybody. Oh, we mm. had, we had too many people on board to authorize that. And we all smelled really, really bad. And water was, <laughs> water was getting low. And we, we got chased by a really bad storm. And we had to get far enough south. And I think it was like north 28 latitude, if I remember correctly. And we had to get far enough south to get away from this storm. And we got caught in that that frontal sort of friction boundary as the trade mm. winds, the warm air and the cold air were, were rubbing up again. And it was just like, it was this night of nights where we were seeing 50 knot squalls go through. It was black as the ace of spades outside, wow. rain, thunder, lightning. It was awful, you know, just absolutely awful. And this was day seven of our passage, I think. And so we had been underway for a while. And finally we punched through that. And the next day we just get into these big rolling, Atlantic swells and it was calm, almost no wind. And we just stopped the boat. And I said, all right, let's just make some water. Let's just, let's just regroup. Cause we mm. got really beaten up that night. And we had an 18 year old, no 19 year old kid on board with us, a good uh, son of uh, good friends of ours. And uh, like, we need to send somebody over the side and, you know, with a butter knife and just kind of poke away at the, uh, at the inlet for the, the, the through hull for the water maker. It was up forward and we weren't, we just, I couldn't prime. I don't know what was going on. We just couldn't prime hmm. the pump. I said, maybe there's a barnacle or something stuck in there. So, you know, Eli was sleeping, go wake him up. Like Eli, I got a job for you. <laughs> Hand him a butter knife. And we, we tie a rope to him and throw him over the side and uh, say, you know, here it is to go chip away at this. So he's going to mask him fins on. He's down there, you know, trying to chip away. And he, he comes up for air and he says, there's something big underneath us. And it's coming up. And I thought he was just saying that to be funny for the kids because mm. the kids were up in the bow watching him. And this, uh, he, it, sure enough, this whale came out of the depths and, uh, and, and to check out the boat. It was a minky whale 
and he's we could tell because he had chevrons on his uh on his flukes and or his flippers excuse me and he's just started circling the boat and so the kids you know we're we're in nineteen thousand feet of water we are a thousand miles from anything right and the kids are all like now dad can we jump in can we go can we go can we go swim with the whale I'm like, kids, we don't know what this is you know i'm exactly. frazzled you know i'm trying to get the water maker going and you know they're like i'm fine i'll go ask mom so they go running down below and they're like mom like she wakes up from a nap she's like ah whale and uh so everyone just like puts on puts on life jackets and jumps over the side with this whale and uh you know mask and flippers and stuff and and uh, uh, we had one person ultimately. We had the water maker running, which is great. I was like, okay, I'm calm now. Water maker's primed. We're making water. Okay, this is good. And so I jumped in with the whale too, and it was it was amazing. One of those one of those life experiences that you will never forget. And we're swimming with mm. a whale, rolling in easy Atlantic swells in 19,000 feet of water. You could just wow. see that you know the blue, the rays reflecting off the thermocline coming back up at you, and this beautiful, gentle creature who was as curious about us as we were about him. And for about 45 minutes, we just swam with him. Uh, and eventually we, uh, he left and said, okay, you know, sun's starting to go down. It's time to continue on our way down to Antigua. We were still a couple of days out and, uh, and off we went. And that, it, that was uh, an amazing experience for that first really long passage. And it was, it was such a morale booster after that, just you know, that awful night we had the night before where everyone was just frazzled. Wow. So, yeah. I, I love how you stayed focused on the water maker. You weren't going to swim with the whale until no. <laughs> you sorted out the water maker. Well, I mean, so this is something else, um, Chris, that uh, I think is, is important to impart upon people who are considering going out to sea and taking their family. Um, and I'll use a, a story from a, another friend of mine. And this, by the way, is the same guy who told me, yeah, dude, it's going to be okay. He ended up buying a boat too. And it took him a while to get that boat underway and get it going. He had a, a number of mechanical issues he had to work through. And so he was actually behind us uh, in the timeline by a year in getting underway, even though he was ahead of me in school. Mm. And uh, he made his first run from Annapolis to Newport or Newport to Annapolis. It was one way or the other. I, I can't remember which way. But uh, I said, John, how'd, how'd it go? How'd your, you know, how'd your first passage go? And he goes, well, he said, the guys I had with me on board thought it was great. And I was pretty stressed out. He said, it's mm. a lot different when you're on someone's boat as a passenger versus being the yeah. skipper and the owner and having that shroud of responsibility over you to make sure that those systems work. And mm. that was something that never, uh, I, I never let go of that. When we were underway, when you say, you know, focus on the water maker. Yeah, it, it was about water. We were down to a you know a quarter capacity, quarter of our capacity. And I knew that we could make it, if, but I didn't want to have to ration water. And I didn't want the kids ever to worry that when they turned the tap on, nothing would come out. And that was my mantra throughout all of our cruising experience was that my responsibility are the boat systems. I am the chief engineer and I'm going to make sure everything works as it should, when it should. Because when you need it is the moment when you don't need to be fixing it. Mm. And you know, whether it was the washing machine or you know, the, the water maker, it didn't matter to me. If a system was down, I was going to do everything in my power to bring it back up online again. Because mm. everyone was counting on me to do that. There was nobody else who was going to come rescue us. Nobody, no flyaway team that was going to come sort it all out. It was us. And that mm. was it.
And once you adopt that mentality of self-sufficiency, uh, you become far more aware of, uh, I think, your limitations, but also, I think, far more aware of what you can do if you put your mind to it. Mm. So, yeah. So, yeah. And That's... water is life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get to, uh, ultimately you get to the Caribbean. Yep. What was the what was the destination port on that trip? Uh, so destination port was English Harbor, Antigua. And okay. that ended up being our, our favorite destination. Mm. It, 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 absolutely beautiful. It's a it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's where Admiral Nelson had his fleet headquartered. And it's if you you read any naval history, which uh, I know you have and, and I, I'm a I'm an avid reader, it, if you look at the quasi war that the United States had with France in uh, the late 1790s, England was a an ally of uh, sort of, I guess we were, we were enemies with their enemies. So they became our friends of sorts at mm. that point after the American revolution. And we had several of our first six frigates go down and fight ship to ship actions with the French right in the vicinity of Montserrat and Guadeloupe. And that is all within in, um, in sight of Antigua. And you understood why the British had their base there. First of all, it's yeah. the most beautiful and, and natural harbor in the Caribbean and most protected. But it's uh, it's right in the you know the right square in the middle of all of the, uh, the 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 trade that was going on down there and the competition that was happening in the Caribbean at that time. So it was such an amazing experience to be there. We're like, wow, we fought ship to ship battles here in 1797, right. in 1798, and you know, right there in Montserrat, and Admiral Nelson was married over on St. Kitts, and you know so and so, you know this French you know privateer was over on Guadeloupe, and you're like, wow, it's really cool. So yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the history is is really amazing, and a lot of the when the um, the sugar plantations were you know at the height of of uh, slavery, a lot of the food came from the east coast of the United States. So the run that we had just made was also one that was U.S. ships, merchant ships, and warships made that trip regularly from mm. Hampton, Virginia, down to the islands to supply them. So you're yeah. hanging out down there. How did you decide? I know. Because I watched your videos on YouTube, how did you decide to migrate in the direction of Panama and the, ultimately the canal transit? I guess so. We got down there in November of 2019, and a number. Of, now, remember, I told you most people will spend a year getting ready to sail. We didn't have that luxury. Um, so once we got down there, we realized that we had some catching up to do. So rather than do the normal island hopping routine, that most people like, hey, I'm going to go down to Martinique. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. We decided that we were just going to stay in the vicinity of Antigua for the for a couple months and just go. You know what? Let's take all pressure off. Let's just learn the boat. You know, learn, teach the kids. You know, get get used to things. And then about that time, when the that period ended, COVID hit, mm. and that was uh, that was a huge shock. We saw it coming. I mean, I was watching the news February, March. This is coming, and all of a sudden, it started to get real down in the Caribbean. And we made the decision to run up to the U.S. Virgin Islands because we knew that was U.S. territory. And we ended up spending four months there. And then that took us out to June, uh, late June. And we said, OK, we got to get south now. So we went south for uh, hurricane season all the way down to Grenada. And by that point, people had gotten a handle on how they were handling COVID. But it, it was it, it was a circus for a while. Nobody mm. knew what was going on. And uh, once we were, we spent hurricane season in Grenada, 
And then uh, we said, all right, uh, what are we going to do now? We're kind of at a crossroads. Do we want to spend another season in the Caribbean or do we want to go somewhere else? And we decided uh, friends who had gone to Panama, but then had to leave their boat there for COVID had flown back. They decided they were going to go through the canal into the Pacific. We said, you know what? They're good friends. They were right there with us at the very beginning of our cruising experience. And we said, okay, let's go. Let's go join them. So we sailed Mm -hmm. up to St. Martin uh, from we went from Grenada to St. Martin. We had to pick up a new tender uh, and a new outboard motor and got that, went to Puerto Rico. We're there for Thanksgiving in 2020. And then we made the run after early December after Thanksgiving to Panama. And that last sort of, I guess we call it that, that last stable weather window before the Christmas winds down in the Caribbean sure. really kick in. Yeah, We had a, one of the best sales of our entire experience of that downwind run from Puerto Rico to Panama. It was beautiful. Absolutely Straight beautiful. shot. Yeah. Straight shot. Yeah. Yep. Right on through. It was a, that was a little over a thousand miles and uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And, and I had, I think I had read, or maybe I'd watched it in your video. You had actually did a dry run on somebody else's boat through the canal before you brought your own family through. Correct. Right. So the Panama Canal, from a private yacht perspective, is it, it is amazing, but it's also very daunting. There is a lot of energy going through that canal. Big ships, you know, a mm. lot of water moving, uh, and it, it it really helps if you can see it once before you actually have to do it on your own boat. And it's very well managed from the canal perspective. Uh, they mm-hmm. bring advisors on board. You can hire land, line handlers, which we did, and I highly recommend anyone going through the Panama Canal hire the local line handlers. They take all of the stress off. We became good friends with them because the, the ones that, that helped us on the way uh, southbound were the same ones that helped us on the way north. Like, hey guys, it's good. welcome back. <laughs> they were great. They were they were fantastic. We it looked them. like they were a part of your family on the video. No, they were, yeah. They're, yeah, they're playing cards with my daughter in the cockpit. and no, they, they were fantastic. Uh, so the Panama Canal was a, a incredible experience, but because they helped make it that way, and then we we course did due diligence and we hired an agent to help us with all the paperwork that really helped out uh and then the marina manager in shelter bay at least when we were there um a guy named juan ho who many cruisers know him from puerto rico phenomenal human being and just uh, he also is so helpful in 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 navigating or helping you navigate the paperwork and the bureaucracy of panama to help get through the canal and get checked mm-hmm. in and everything else so uh yeah that the, the the Panama Canal was, we, we it, that was a, a actually, um, the Panama Canal was a, a strong pull for us just to go through the canal, to mm. have that experience because we looked at it and it's like, okay, cruising, are we going to look back on our cruising experience and regret that we didn't go through the canal? Right. And the answer was yes, because it is such a wonder of human engineering. And when you mm. see it, you, you have to see it to believe it. Yeah, I talked with um, one of my earlier guests, and she had, I think she's been through both, but she had been through the Suez Canal as well more than once. And she was talking about the differences, and the Suez is literally just a, a cut in the sand. It is. There's, I've been through the Suez Canal a number of times. And mm. Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was the uh, French engineer who dug the Suez Canal, thought he could do the same design with the Panama Canal, but the Chagres River floods in the rainy season from you know starting in may and running through the summertime right. and it, it just it washed out all of his work and and it's one of those um 
the, the remnants of the French influence are there. The, uh, there's a spur where they tried to cut, the original cut that they made trying to get from north to south is still there. It's like the, it's a, it shows as a spur on the canal as you come in. Uh, and then uh, Eiffel, the same guy who made the Eiffel Tower, designed mm. a lighthouse on. It's in Shelter Bay. It's still there. So the French influence is still very much visible when you go through. But when you look at the genius of what uh, the U.S. did when we came in there with the plan, and not only that, the, not only building the canal, but eradicating mosquitoes, which was killing you know, hundreds of people down there, thousands of people. Right. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. as a U.S. Army doctor came in and said, I believe mosquitoes are the problem. And nobody had equated mosquitoes with yellow fever and malaria up to that point. And he came up with this bold proposition, got an audience with Theodore Roosevelt and then, you know, said, this is going to delay everything by a year, but you're going to want this. Mm. And someone convinced Roosevelt that this was the way to go. And I, even today, we didn't have any mosquito problems when we went through the canal. In, or in Shelter wow. Bay when we were there waiting. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're none. <laughs> it's <was> amazing. <laughs> Eradication. Yeah. So how far, once you got through the canal um, on the Pacific side, how what was your plan or did you have a plan? We did have a plan. We were going to go all the way up to the Sea of Cortez because at that point we, we didn't think we, well, COVID had a significant impact on cruising the normal cruising route people go through the panama canal uh they stop provision go to las perlas which is the archipelago just uh, 40 miles uh south of panama city in the gulf of panama go there and then they they launch from there out to the galapagos and then galapagos you know out into the the deeper pacific but the problem mm -hmm. is the french society islands uh and uh, or excuse me french polynesia and the society islands there was no guarantee that you could get a visa. And if you did get there, if the visa would change or you'd be asked to leave. And at that point, Australia and New Zealand were closed. Mm. So the only option for us really was uh, to go north and west. And so we said, oh, we'll go up to the Sea of Cortez. And we had to get out of hurricane season again if we started making that trip. And that, that's a long trip. That's uh, 2,000 miles just to get to, um, you know, just to get to the mouth of the Sea of Cortez. And then mm. it's another 700 miles up into the Sea of Cortez to get out of out of the, uh, the hurricane zone. So that's a lot of miles. And we, we went through the canal, went out to Las Perlas, uh, went around the corner on, around Punta Mala, which is the mouth of the uh, Gulf of Panama. And it's, I love the Spanish nomenclature for things. Punta Mala, point bad, and it is. The Ecuador current. <laughs> I mean, they don't mess around with the name. Yeah. Like point Sunshine, absolutely not. It was Point no. Bad, and it was. The uh, the Ecuador current goes right alongside that, and you get these the trade winds come uh, screaming across the Caribbean, and then they bend south and go across the Isthmus of Panama, and it meets the Ecuador current right there at, at Punta Mala, which is 90 Ooh. miles south. Oh, it's bad. It, it can get really rough. And so there are ways, and I'm, I'm actually going to circle back and write a blog post on how we – mitigated that coming back around because there are a lot of people who could start in the Sea of Cortez and they want to go to the Caribbean and they're going to go through the Panama Canal. So they've got to come around Punta Mala. And if you time it with the tides uh, in, the, in the Pacific and actually the moon, uh, the moon phase, you can mitigate some of the Ecuador current and knock it down mm. from three knots down to a knot and a half. And, it's, <laughs> and if you can get the right wind angle, you know, the right wind speed, it's, it's not so bad. Wow. So yeah, it's, that's a, 
that's an, an adventure. So we went around um, into the uh, the Gulf of Chiriqui on the western side of Panama, and we were starting up towards Costa Rica, and we got all the way to the border, and just decided to stop because at that point we had lost our cruising buddies. They decided like, no, we're done cruising, we quit, and they <laughs> they turned around <laughs> and they went back through the Panama Canal. And so we were out there alone for a month cruising in the Gulf of Cherokee. And, but it was, we were still in heavy, I would call it heavy COVID conditions and limitations. So mm. Costa Rica didn't really care what you did, but right. if, if to check back into Panama to come the other way was going to be another bureaucratic nightmare. And so we just decided, you know what, let's just stop right here. Instead of going North, let's go, back to Panama City when we're done here and then um, and then sort things out. We had our water maker was giving us some problems. The membrane had reached the end of its life and all of a sudden our parts per million, our total dissolved solids was starting to, the numbers were starting to go up. We thought, okay, we got to go fix this. And there's nothing in the Gulf of Cherokee because nobody ever cruises there. So we had it to ourselves. We didn't see another boat for three weeks. Wow. And we did some amazing diving. Both of our kids got uh, at 11 and 13, both were scuba qualified. And so we went into the Coiba National Park in Panama, which was absolutely stunning underwater. Some of the most complete ecosystems I have ever seen. And it gave me hope that we can protect marine life. I, I mean, I, imagine if you've gone to the Boston Aquarium or the Monterey Aquarium and you see that giant cylindrical tank. Mm. where all the fish are just circling, all of them, sharks, snappers, you know, it, 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 the whole line of it, big fish, small fish. And we never saw that in the Caribbean ever. Mm. And then we got to Coiba and we dove a couple of the seamounts with a guide. And it was, I didn't know where to look. There was so much happening. And you saw, wow. it was like being in the middle of New York city, but it was a Marine New York city. And instead of people, it was fish or Marine life. And the sharks and the turtles and snappers the size of coffee tables. And, and just, it was incredible. And we got to dive with a whale shark. One swam mm. right underneath us. And the, the Pacific was just, the, some of the work that that, um, that is being done to preserve life uh, in some of these areas is, is well worth it. I mean, we saw mm. the benefits of it. It was incredible. Absolutely. It's hard to describe. Right. That's beautiful. So that was one of the drivers for getting us over there and getting around Punta Mala and then knowing that we had to come back. But um, can you hear that biplane? Oh, that was a plane. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was my stomach. Yeah. No, there's a, <laughs> literally a, a biplane circling right over the top of my head. He's going to go away here in a second. That's right. But, but yeah, the, the driver for us uh, was getting to Coiba and uh, mm. Isla Coiba. It's a big island. It's the biggest island in, in Mesoamerica. And uh, it, it's all protected land. So it's all mm. a national park for Panama, but very well worth it. And we saw that, did some diving, and then we were starting to fret a little bit, or at least I was about the water maker. So we came back around and uh, braved Punta Mala coming around and then up into Panama City. And at that point we said, you know, maybe we should explore Maybe this is maybe this is the off ramp for us. It was now, you know, February of 2021, uh, getting into March, and we said, "What what are we going to do? Uh, we can't commit to crossing the Pacific. We're not going to go up to the Sea of Cortez. 
maybe it's time to sell the boat in this market. And we casually mentioned it to our boat coaches who are always grooming new clients and said, if you are looking for anyone who is selling or interested in buying a boat, um, I think we're going to sell our boat. Mm. And I think a week later, we had committed buyers who were flying out to Panama City from Miami and they came out, we hosted them for a weekend. They saw the boat and they're like, great, we'll buy it. I said, do you want to, you want to look in any compartments or anything? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you want to tap on anything? <laughs> you want to tap? I said, are you going to take my word for it? But she was a, uh, it was a husband and wife. They left their kids back in Miami to see the boat, much like Andy and I did. And she was mm-hmm. a U.S. Air Force Academy, a couple of years behind me from my graduation date from Annapolis career Air Force officer, and she and her husband, absolutely amazing people. You got to meet them. Mm-hmm. They came into Newport Nautical Supply, did the exact same thing that we did with the boat in our first year, which was sail it to Newport. And uh, we just, yeah, th- those guys were fantastic. And the boat sold without ever hitting the market. And wow. we gave them a, um, my commitment to them, therefore, was to give them the absolute best turnover that I could possibly create that mm. everything that i could think of i promised them that that their boat would be as sail away ready as the boat when we bought it right and and it was again that underpinning of trust from the veteran perspective that 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 allowed us to do the entire transaction we didn't have a broker we didn't have anyone negotiate anything between us it was all done via trust and it was wow. really really refreshing and therefore there was no way I was going to let this Air Force officer have one thing that she could find wrong with the boat. <laughs> so, <laughs> but no, but seriously, it, it was um, this tremendous sense of responsibility that we felt because they were yeah. bringing their kids on board too. And I did not want them at all to be offshore with their children on board and have right. something go wrong that I knew was a problem that I just sort of casually you know, like glossed over or swept under the carpet. No way. Yeah. Absolutely not. So uh, we, uh, so they left Panama City. We ended up going back through the canal northbound. And then we sailed from Panama City up to Isla Mujeres, Mexico, uh, the Cancun area. And then uh, from there across the Gulf Stream twice to Tampa, Florida. Mm. Sorry. This guy's coming right. back. He's back. Yeah. Are you, are you near a local airfield there? No, I think the owner of that biplane, he's another uh, former prowler, Bubba. We uh, used to fly prowlers out of here, out of Woodby Island. I think that's his airplane, and it's oh, a biplane. Okay. Yeah, it's really cool. I think he's just circling over his house. <laughs> so they, the the new owners, I, I didn't realize, I thought you had sold it stateside, or they, they accompanied you on that last leg. No, they didn't. Oh, um, oh they didn't. Oh, I'm sorry. Originally. I just the timeline. Yeah. Okay. So if we back up in February of 2021, they flew out to Panama City to look at the boat because they were shopping uh, at that point. Right. I got you. And uh, at, at that point, we were still committed to going all the way north to the Sea of Cortez. And we said, you know, look, we're planning on going there. If you want the boat, we'll make it ready for you in the Sea of Cortez. Just tell us where and when. And they said, no problem at all. And then our plans changed. So we went back to them and said, listen, we'll deliver the boat to Florida for you and we'll get it there by june 14th or 15th at the latest but we're very concerned about hurricane season for you guys and we need to make sure that you're comfortable with that timeline otherwise we'll have to work something else out Mm. and when you just talk to people and get a sense of their you know what they want um, it's amazing what you can work out so we 
both agreed that both parties agreed that sailing the boat back to Florida would be the best course of action. They said, we're from Florida where we live in Miami, where we understand hurricanes. We're not concerned about it. We have a plan to get the boat north up to Newport as soon as we buy it. So mm. get it up here. Let's turn it over. And then, you know, we'll be underway by July 1st and, you know, getting around mm. the, the, the southern part of Florida and hit the Gulf Stream and then just shoot on up to Newport. So that's what we that's what we did. And, you know, it was uh, the last passage we made was from Isla Mujeres over to Tampa, Florida, and it was awful. <laughs> the uh, we we picked the best weather window we could. We got stuck there for ten extra days in Eastland Harris. We we planned to stop in. We had a good friend ride up from us from um, Panama. And he got off in Isla Mujeres, and then we said, we'll just run the boat across. You know, how bad can it be? 350 miles, no big deal. It was awful. <laughs> uh, our first crossing of the Gulf Stream was absolutely miserable. Uh, we got caught in some uh, some contrary wind and current. And the, it, it wasn't that the wind was so strong. It was only gusting up to 23, but the, the wave action was so confused, and they were so big. Mm. And one at one point, the bow rose, and a wave came and hit the inside of the you know, the, the port hull. So we had the two you know, the two hulls. It passed by the starboard hull, hit the inside of the port hull. I thought the boat was going to split in half. It hit so hard. Ouch. And at that point, I said, you know, we had a single reef in the main, and we're, we're we are literally in this in this awful awful sea state. And I thought, I'm not going forward. I'm not sending any, we had jack lines, right? I was like, I'm not sending anyone forward. We had one point we had a wave wash over the bow, wash up the front of the boat and then hit the, hit the windscreen on the elevated helm station. My daughter came out wide eyed and said, daddy, is it going to be like this the entire way back? And I said, I sure hope not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I think I told her it was going to be fine. Uh, And my, in in thinking my, we're going to sink at sea and be lost. (laughs) I didn't tell her that (laughs) captain has to have some sort of confidence. Uh, But then I started looking at options and said, okay, think, you know, what, what can we do? What, what are, what what do we have available to us? And so we spilled the wind out of the main, you know, we reefed the, the, uh, the head sail in considerably. I just slowed the boat down. I said, okay, we're going to be doing three and a half knots, but we're not going to get pounded to pieces. Right. And anyone who's been across the Gulf Stream, it can be you know upwards of 50 to 60 miles wide in parts. And it's mm. that's a long way to go. It, you know, That's 10 hours at six knots. And so you're just getting pounded for 10 hours. It's bad for morale. Yeah. But you know, we got through that. And then after that, it was fine. The second crossing the Gulf Stream was you know, almost a non-event. It, we couldn't even tell we were there. Uh, it was only by you know position alone that we knew we had crossed it and then into Tampa and sold the boat. And gave them the turnover that we had promised them. And then that was that. Um, the, the, our last sale uh, was helping friends move their catamaran north from the Bahamas up to uh, the Chesapeake Bay. And they were on their way up to Nova Scotia. They were a Canadian family. And we had met them early in our cruising experience. Absolutely loved them. They were you know, great, great mm. family. And so we said, yeah, sure, we'll help you move your boat. And um, I had my last fishing experience. You know, we we started our fishing experience losing that that big yellowfin tuna <laughs> off Nag's head, and so I said, "This is my last chance. This is the last go around." And we ran some. I rigged up some ballyhoo on some Islander lures, and we were fishing uh, right off Marsh Harbor, uh, right at the drop off there, and uh, had a massive strike. And this fish hit, and I, I looked at the, the line that was not engaged. We were running a couple of trolling lines, and I said, okay, we got to get that line in. And all of a sudden, it went quiet. I mean, I mean the line, the, the reel was screaming. And it was just, I, was, uh, uh, I thought Brad had put braided backup line on his reel and on his spool, and he did not. And 
300 yards of 60 pound mono just left gone this Ugh. fish whatever it was i'm guessing it was a bluefin uh or or a huge yellowfin took the bait and just dove deep with it and that was that that was gone. the end of that Ugh. 15 seconds of screaming and then it was over so oh man so that was my last chance of the tuna we did fish on the way up and we caught a couple of uh mahi that was uh, that was mm. the extent of it but then uh, that that was it so we pulled into hampton right where we started the salty dog two years earlier and and wow. uh and walked off the boat so that my, was, that was my first offshore experience ever i think it was 1989 i went from newport to bermuda and if it's one of those things if you knew then what you know now you wouldn't have done it but it turned out all right and yeah the skipper of the boat was this, I, I think he actually did two or three years at Annapolis and he dropped out. When I met him, he was this sort of hippie guy. And we caught a mahi on the way to Bermuda, south of the stream, on the, I think on the southern edge. And I had never, we didn't even have a reel. We hand pulled this thing in, this Swedish yeah. girl and I. And we got it in the cockpit and it's flopping around. And I didn't know what to do. I'd never caught anything more than a rainbow trout. I'd so I don't know, Annika, the, the Swedish girl or myself grabbed the winch handle and the captain Rick comes running up. He goes, no, you're going to make a mess of the boat. He came up with a, a bottle of rum and he threw yep. the equivalent of a shot glass down the gill. And that was the end of that fish. That's what we did. I'd never so heard. We had, I'd, well, I'd never seen yeah. that before. It was fun. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up fishing because fishing is one of those things that I thought I knew how to do. And I, once we got on board, I realized very quickly I knew nothing about pelagic fishing. Uh, that there are, um, there are things that you can do wrong. Probably more things you can do wrong than you can do right. And uh, as everyone says, if you know, it's it's if, if you just throw a hook in the water, it'd be called catching, not fishing. But <laughs> but after a while, I met a another cruising family, and uh, the the husband was a fantastic fisherman, and they they ran a a. a uh, I think it was a Facebook group and sail, sailfish, sailfish tales. I think it was. Anyways, it, he's, he's just a fantastic fisherman. And so he came aboard. We met them in Antigua, and he came aboard. And he, uh, we took the boat out fishing. We took the boat out fishing a number of times. Just you know, left the dinghy back, ran five lines. Because with a catamaran, we had twenty-five feet of beam. Wow. So we could run five lines, basically a, a, a spread, right? So. Mm. We'd have uh, four rods and a hand line going down the middle, and we just we'd we'd go out and net ballyhoo the night before, and then we'd rig up islander lures and ballyhoo and go out and fish the the bottom terrain and look for the ledges and and especially around Antigua, it's fantastic fishing. We ended up having a really good system, and mahi in particular are very active when you bring them on board. So we had a huge yeti cooler, the biggest one they make, uh, whatever it's 120 cubic something or another liters or whatever it is, and we had that back on the transom, and then we called that our mahi containment unit, and we had this. <laughs> no, that, that was it, the MCU, and we would you know get mahi. And we would drag them up the sugar scoop and then right in, like lure everything line, just get them in there and then slam the lid. And then my daughter would just sit on top of it and like, it's like having a turkey in the, in the dryer, <laughs> a frozen turkey in the dryer. And uh, then wait for the fish to calm down a little bit. And then we'd get a little bit of uh, isopropyl alcohol and just put it in their gills and just help them expire peacefully mm. and, and with a little bit of dignity. Uh, without you know hitting them over the head with a, right. a, a witch handle <laughs> or the, the forget me stick. <laughs> so... But we did that with uh, uh, Wahoo. We did that with Mahi Mahi and Barracuda. We didn't keep Blackfin Tuna. We ended up putting all those back as well. In fact, we put mm. back more fish than we kept. If it wasn't sure. a Mahi or a Wahoo, we didn't keep it. Mm. So we just we put it back. 
yeah, but yeah was fishing the, was a huge part of it that was the freshest fish i think i've ever ate yeah it, it, fishing was um that was a part of every passage that we did it was part of our game plan going into it uh how we would maneuver the boat we actually got very serious about it you know it, especially when we took the boat out for a pure fishing trip but it was those moments when we we weren't on a pure fishing trip like how are we going to if it's just Andy and me and the kids, we didn't have any extra crew on board, which for most of the time we did not. What happens if we get a double hookup? Mm. And that happened. We had a number of times we had a double hookup running a couple of lines, uh, double hookup of mahi, double hookup of tuna. We had a sailfish at one point. Uh, as, and that's, those are big events. And so we had a pre-planned response to all of that. Okay, who's going to go to the helm? Who's going to get the head sail in? Sure. How are we going to manage the boat speed? How are we talking? Who's got eyes on the fish? It, it, it worked out really, really well. It, it took a few iterations of that for us to nail it down. But um, we practiced a lot because uh, mm. we drag lines all the time. But when we caught a fish, uh, everyone knew where to go. It wasn't just bedlam and chaos and you know screaming. And you know, of course, there was a lot of like, ah, fish on. But, right. but everyone had a job. And that was really important. And that's another... I think important point to bestow upon people. It's one thing to drag a line behind the water and catch a fish, but then what? You know, what, mm. what do you do with this thing? Especially right. if you catch a billfish. You know, I, I, that was my worst. Like, I, I didn't want to catch any billfish because you got some sixty-pound ticked-off fish with a sword on the front of his face. You know, like fencing with you. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't want nothing to do with that. No, so, yeah, yeah, you, you don't know. want that. Yeah, you touched on it. it made me think. I, I, it was a question I was going to ask about watching your kids grow and develop, but the fishing really touched on it. Uh, having your daughter sit on top of a Yeti cooler that was flopping about, but <laughs> um, it must've been something, not just the, the fishing, but to see them grow and develop on a boat, you know, as, as watch them mature and, and take on responsibilities that perhaps they wouldn't have ashore. Uh, Chris, I'm so glad you brought that point up because <laughs> it was amazing watching the children adapt to that lifestyle. And they were, nine and 11 when we started and mm -hmm. watching them get confidence it, it, towards the end uh, our son was driving the boat up to a mooring ball uh, our daughter was running the windlass up forward you know my son would get the boat underway watching the kids in the dinghy they would just jump in the dinghy and just take off and mm -hmm. especially down islands aren't any rules and and we, we got back to the united states and we're in tampa now my daughter's salty you now she's got you know almost 10,000 nautical miles of blue water sailing under her under her belt, two transits to the Panama Canal. She's just running around in a 25 horse, you know, rigid inflatable. We get to Tampa and we get to the Davis Island Yacht Club and we hadn't run the dinghy in a while and the new owners are going to see the boat sooner. So, you know, hey, you know, Lex, can you just put the dinghy in the water and just run it around the basin a little bit here? So she did. And no sooner had she gotten literally like 50 feet from the boat and a police boat pulled up and... <laughs> You know, flash the sirens and the and the lights and everything else, and and basically pulled her over. Oh and God. someone had called the police because there were other kids running uh, jet skis through the basin, and they weren't mm -hmm. supposed to. So somebody called the police, and the police show up just as my daughter sticks her nose out from the like the finger piers into the harbor, oh. and you know they you know, they escort her back to our boat. Like, is this your is this your daughter? Yeah, yes, sir, it is. Uh, well, does she have a certificate of competence? Like, what? <laughs> what? Like, and where's her life jacket? I'm like, uh, uh, okay. Um, all right. First of all, she's a boat kid. Yeah. Well, I understand that, but back in the United States, I was like, all right. He's like, we're gonna let you go. It'd normally, be a ninety dollar fine. I was like, okay, thank you very much. Okay. And Lex was humiliated. 
and oh. uh, I, I, I and I thought afterwards, does that guy even know this this girl, this eleven year old girl in this dinghy, has more competence and confidence mm. running that boat around than just about every other kid within a hundred miles or more, mm. and probably a lot of the adults too. So watching the kids get to that point where they knew their limitations, but they had also grown their skills and they, they were so competent. We didn't worry about them. They were great boat kids and giving kids that experience. And if anyone's out there listening, who is thinking about you know bringing their kids and how they'll respond, they did amazingly well mm-hmm. and they adapted so well and what they saw and then what they were able to do and then coming back to land with those skills and experiences and perspectives has made them just more confident human beings. And they're polite. One of the assessments that we get all the time is that our kids actually look people in the eye and they shake their hand, you know, how do you do? And they talk to adults and that's, that's boat kids. Mm. All the boat kids we knew did that. They were all very confident in themselves. And it was a tight knit community out there as well, because they knew that all the other kids who were out there had gone through the same crucible that they had gone through. So it's kind of like going through boot camp. Mm. I mean, that, that first big offshore passage, you know, 12 days for them underway, blue water, you know, out of sight of land for the first time. And for them to go through that, they knew that everyone else had gone through that too. And so it kind of, it like, we'd pull into harbors and stuff. And it was like, well, they're not boat kids, so we don't want to hang out with them. Like, mm. Okay. I mean, no, I, I, I totally get that because that's you know their genre of their their peers were the kids who had gone through all that just like them. Wow. So, yeah, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, that's funny. You go away from the States and you come back and then you forget about the, the strong police mentality. I guess it's probably stronger down in Florida. No, I mean, we didn't we didn't want to be cowboys ever. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm very conservative, uh, you know, as a former naval aviator, I'm you know, very safety conscious. And, you know, the, those rules keep you alive when you're out on the sure. aircraft carrier. I mean, those are, carrier aviation was a great uh, learning experience to prepare me for this. Um, mm. It's kind of a funny way to look at it. But you you live by a set of rules and you follow those rules. And they, they're, they're the ones that keep you alive and keep you safe uh, and keep you from hurting someone else. And so we followed those rules even when nobody was looking, it, mm. it was important to us and our kids understood that. And in this particular case, you know, like we had this joke on board. It's like, you know, it's okay to be stupid. Just don't do it in public. Um, <laughs> we didn't want to be stupid. I mean, we didn't want to be stupid in public. And we had read about people getting pulled over. You don't have lights. And down in the islands, you know, it's, it's always like this big free-for-all. It, people running around at night holding up an iPhone, you know, for their dinghy lights and so on. And our, we always had lights and you know, right. followed the rules, you know, 30 minutes before sunset and after sunrise and all that stuff. And just at one time back in the US, mm. and she's literally puttering around the boat, you know, like within 50 feet of us. And right. <laughs> this giant oh. police boat comes up, this large man with a, you know, you know gun and a badge. And he's like, oh, is your daughter? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> what just yeah. happened? Welcome back. Welcome home. Yeah. What are your plans now? We wanted to stay close to the water. So we, we left the boat without a whole. We, we didn't have a very comprehensive plan when we left. We just knew that we, we needed to get the boat back to Florida, needed to get through turnover. And then we kind of entered this world of limbo. And it was a very uncomfortable place to be, and we were not happy. It was a great time to sell the boat. So it was a good market for that. But the housing market is, is ridiculous. Um, trying to buy a car is ridiculous. Um, all of these things that we hadn't really anticipated 
coming back to the U.S. hit us you know, right in the face. Mm. So we finally decided we had to land somewhere. So the very same people who had given us the analogy of the, you know, the hands open and closed said, hey, the house down the street from us just came available. Why don't you come out here? It's, you can rent it. And so we did. We came out to Anacortes, Washington. Uh, Andy and I had met and married out in this area back in 2001. We, we met uh, just before 9-11. Mm. So we came out to Anacortes. It's beautiful out here. And the huge boating community, we, I've already been out fishing and crabbing, and we've only been here for, I think, three weeks. So oh, wow. today I was down on the Snohomish River fishing for pink salmon, and you can just watch them swimming by. It's amazing. So this was a place that pulled to us very, very strongly. I think I'm going to stay in the marine industry. I haven't found a job yet, but I haven't actively looked. We needed to get settled first. And then sure. there is a, a huge marine presence out here, a marine trades, marine services from both big shipyards down to small you know, mom and pop size uh, places mm. that I'd like to use the skills that I acquired at Iris and then put those to work. Because I just, one of the things I found, Chris, and I think you and your dad were both very inspirational in that way is I loved helping people. You know, I had these skills from Iris and, and there were people who would be confused about something on their boat and, you know, hey, can you come help? Of course I'll come help you. Hey, my, my outboard engine fell off and it went upside down in the water and I, right. I got it back, but, you know, can you help me get it? Sure, absolutely. We, we learned all that stuff at school. I can help you get your outboard motor back running. I can come yeah. over and help you troubleshoot your generator. I, you know, I just, I love doing that. And so I thought, well, if, if I love doing it, maybe I can make a living at it. And so sure. I think that's the next step. That's excellent. Yeah. At some point, I think cruising gave us the separation between who we were as a military family. Mm -hmm. We endured a lot of moves, a lot of stress, a lot of separation, uh, a lot of anxiety. And we needed to create some sort of buffer to get us off that sort of that that express train of constant movement and, and stress. And maybe a boat wasn't the best way to do that in hindsight. Like, oh, let's jump on another thing that's constantly moving and right. changing and everything else. And, you know, so it can be a huge stress bomb sometimes. You know, we talked about the, the high highs and the low lows and the low lows are crushing. You know, when you're, mm. you're exhausted and the, you know, the, the Marine head decides to blow up and you're all of a sudden you're dealing with a huge pile of poo in the bottom of it. Like, it's just, oh, you know, it's like, I can't, Make I can't handle this anymore. Make it stop. I, I can't take one more thing going wrong. But we always found a way to sort it out. But now mm. I think our, our plan is just to settle down and just find some, some stability mm. and get the kids through high school. And then we can talk about the next adventure after that. But, uh, you know, my daughter was down fishing with me on the Snohomish River today. And uh, she's great. I mean, just watching her with a rod, just casting in into the current. You know, she's mm. 11 years old. And she's got her catch card already. And it was fantastic to watch that. Uh, and then we'll continue our attachment to the ocean out here in the Puget Sound area, which is just, just stunningly beautiful. It does look beautiful. So, I, I looked at pictures and when you showed me where you were, I went on Google Earth. I've never been further west than Park City, Utah. Someday I'll get to the West Coast. Well, we'd love to host you out here. I mean, you, yeah. you, you guys are always welcome and we'll uh, we'll make that invitation readily we're, available to you yeah we're a bit behind my wife was supposed to go home she's from england she was supposed to come to visit her mom on march 26 2020 and as that date drew nearer and nearer i was panicking oh, wow. and going i'm worried that you might not make it back 
and yeah. and she said, "Oh, that'll be all right." And, and but Virgin Atlantic made the decision for us. Well, actually, the UK government made the decision for us when uh, when they shut down. So she hasn't been back to see her mom yet. So I don't I don't know when that. And every time we think it might happen, there's a new thing. I, I don't wow. I, I don't think she wants to be on a plane for starters. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, uh, yeah, it's recycled air, unknown. Yeah, we've flown a number of times now since we got back, and that was a concern for us too. But we, I mean, we're we got vaccinated as soon as we got back. It's funny you mentioned a couple of pandemic stories. We were in St. Martin uh, right, right about the time we were uh, buying our new dinghy. This was uh, let's see when was this October 2020, and we left Grenada. We were up in St. Martin, and we had a problem with our washing machine. We needed to get a part. Uh, sent in we had a drain pump we need a new drain pump so I found the company uh, which is um, Westland sales and they're in Clackamas Oregon mm. and Oregon uh, Washington State at that time this is October they had locked down they were just starting to lock down hard for the holidays and I'm calling this guy from a cruiser bar in st. Martin and he said I'm having a hard time hearing you I said oh god I'm sorry this table next to me is full of French people and they're all having a great time having lunch and the music's <laughs> kind of loud in here. He goes, how is it? And I, and I, our mailing address was Seattle because we're Washington residents. And he goes, so I'm given, he's trying to get my address down. That's what he was trying to do for the payment. And he said, uh, how is it that you're at a bar in Seattle and all this noise is going on? I thought they were locking down hard. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm in St. Martin. I need you to send this part to Miami, but I'm really sorry. We're having a great time here. Eh, too yeah. bad. <laughs> but when we bought the boat, uh, the the previous owners had made this deal with us, and they said, you know, we're we're not done cruising yet. I mean, we're selling you our boat, but we really we love cruising so much. And they lived slopeside in Colorado, uh, in a, a ski resort in Colorado, oh, wow. and they said, how about in March, when it's uh, you know, you've been on the boat now for nine months or whatever it is, and you know maybe you're ready to ski now. And and how about we do a trade? So this would have been March of 2020, mm-hmm. and so we it came down to, are you coming? Like, is this going to happen? Mm-hmm. And we said, you know, I don't think it's going to be too bad. You know, let's let's go ahead and do it. And at the last minute, they they had some health concerns and they decided not to. If we had done that trip. I think we would have missed a year of cruising and they would have been on our boat, stuck on our boat in St. Martin right. or wherever we, they were, Antigua. And we would have been in their place in Colorado, <laughs> locked down. It, it, it came that close. Yeah. And it, it got weird with COVID-19. It, it, it did. We ended up spending COVID-19, you know, for that, the initial freak out, as I called it, uh, in March, April, May, and June of 2020, uh, we got locked down in Maho Bay, St. John, which is a beautiful place to get stuck. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a mm. it's part of the national park. All of St. John's a national park. And we we ended up going to the east side over to Coral Bay, which is on the east side of St. John. We ran there from St. Martin. Uh, in fact, a good friend of ours who had joined the Salty Dog in November of 2019, the last time we saw him was in Budget Marine in St. Martin. And then we found out a couple of weeks later that he had come. He didn't look right. He was a retired astrophysicist and gynecologist. This guy was a remarkable human being, and he There's was normal. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he had. He was in direct contact with Sally Ride when she was on the space shuttle back in the because that was the late eighties. Wow. Uh, and he was doing uh, gamma ray um, testing from the space shuttle as a graduate student at Columbia University. This guy was remarkable. And uh, he ended up contracting COVID and dying. Uh, 
Uh, they airlifted him first to Guadalupe and then to Miami, and then he he died. And it was uh, we we saw him. COVID was starting to hit the islands. It was starting to become a thing. This was uh, early March of 2020. Mm. And we ran from Antigua to St. Martin, did a provisioning. That's when we saw him. And then we ran from St. Martin. We did the 90-mile run to uh, St. John. And beautiful downwind sail. It was gorgeous. Again, one of the better sails mm. we had. Ran the, ran the Jenniker all night long under a full moon. It was just beautiful. Got to Coral Bay, anchored. We were the first ones there. And... Uh, the locals, after about 10 days, started to get up in arms about you know, people anchoring you know, right there in, in their bay. And that part was not included in the national park, so anyone could just anchor there. And we suddenly started getting very concerned about provisions. And so we ran to, we started, uh, you know, this is now mid-March, and mm. freak out is really starting to happen in the U.S. This is when the long lines for toilet paper were happening. Right. People were waiting around the block for this kind of stuff. And we thought, oh my God, we got to get to we got to get to St. Thomas and provision. And so we did. When we got to St. Thomas, it was like nothing was going on in the world. We walked right. in, every grocery store was fully stocked, everything was fine. There were no <laughs> lines. There was no like you had to kind of wash your hands or whatever when you came in. Sure, like, eh, you know it's fine. And so we we provisioned for the apocalypse. I think we're still eating stuff that we bought in St. Thomas, uh, even in our yeah. house now. Uh, we pulled it off the boat, but we did this massive provisioning because. We didn't know if we were going to get kicked out of St. Thomas because we mm. heard stories from from Puerto Rico where the Puerto Ricans handed control down to the local level for how they wanted to manage COVID. So and it varied. So, so it varied. So if someone came into a marina, they could be asked to leave. Mm. And then once you leave, you're not allowed into the next place. And Customs right. and Border Patrol had no – they're like, whatever. You come into the – you're inside the, the the national border. You're fine. I don't care what you do. You, we'll clear you in. And so people coming in with CBP Rome clearance, and they were getting asked to leave and getting mm. chased out of harbors. And so we thought that was going to come to us too. So we were like, all right, I guess we're going to be out at sea for 30 days. We were, better be ready. So, sure. But ended up we ended up spending four months in Maho Bay, and the kids didn't even know COVID was happening. <laughs> swimming with manta rays and you – know, and, and eagle rays at night and tarpon under the boat and so on. And they, they're just having a blast. But Well, well that'd be inter interesting 20 years from now when people are talking about it and your kids say, well, we were swimming with manta rays. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, what were you doing during COVID? Well, we were swimming with manta rays. Fish. You know, I, I wrote about this at one point and you could say that we were absolutely geniuses for looking into 2020 from 2019 saying, I'll bet there's going to be a pandemic that happens and being on a boat's the right thing. Mm. We had no idea. No clue at all. No, no clue, of course yeah. not. Nobody does. Nobody has a crystal ball. It came down to one thing, and it was just making a decision to go. The timing didn't matter, and you know, it, it was time and money. It was just we're gonna we're gonna buy the boat, and we're just gonna get the boat that we want that's safe and comfortable for us, and we're gonna go. I'm not gonna worry about it, and it was worth every penny of it. That's yeah. great, and and the boat found a great home. Yeah, you know? there's something it, when it comes to buying and selling something that is so much a part of your life that it, you also want to find a good home for it and make sure you find people, mm. vet them so that they are going to take care of the thing that you put so much work into. And that was the same thing the sellers did for us when we bought their boat. They're like, mm, we're not going to sell it to you if you're not going to take care of it. I actually sent him updates like right. every week, pictures like, hey, look what I did. You know, <laughs> hey, I polished this piece of stainless steel. It looks just like you did when you gave it to me. And uh, I, I was right. very concerned about that because I wanted him to understand and know that I was taking care of this thing that he gave me 
Uh, I don't expect mm. that from the people who bought the boat from us, but I also, I, I wanted to make sure that we gave it to them in a great condition. And, and that's the, the lesson out of that is when you shop for a boat, shop for the owner, because mm. as long as the boat is more or less what you want, if the owner has taken care of it, it'll be a lot less problems for you down the road because right. you know that the service has been done, that things have been maintained or updated. You're not dealing with some antiquated piece of junk that's going to fall apart the minute you get offshore. No, we had complete mm -hmm. confidence in the boat, uh, and rightfully so. And we got caught in some blows uh, a couple of times where we were seeing you know, 50, 55 knots, and, and the, the boat did great. You know, we were freaking out, but mm -hmm. <laughs> the, yeah. the boat did great. The first time you go offshore in a boat that you've just bought, uh, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about the boat and, you know, what kind of spares that you, you thought you needed, uh, what kind of fishing gear you thought you needed. You learn very, very quickly what is important. And it, we got to the point towards the end of cruising that, you know, I would sit down and chair fly. It was something we used to say back in the in my aviation days. You sit down and just sort of sit in a chair and visualize your entire flight, you know, whether it was a combat flight or a mm. regular training flight or whatever, you just sit down and just take some time to go through it so you can see what's coming at you. I started doing that. You know, I, we got comfortable enough. I could sit down and do that with the boat and I would literally pull out the parts and the tools, especially if it was a passage and say, okay, what's the most likely thing that could go wrong. And mm. I would have those tools and those spares literally on hand, either, you know, in the cockpit or you know, right in the salon. And a couple times it did play out, you know, like we broke an engine belt, like, okay, I got a belt right here. I've got the 19 millimeter socket that I know I need to get the belt, you know, whatever, like, you know, and, and the two screwdrivers and the yeah. 15 millimeter wrench or whatever. And it's like, it's all right there. I don't have to go dig for it. Boom. Done. That's intense preparation. <laughs> well, you know, it, it only takes one time getting burned, you know, like getting stung by something. Right. And our first passage, the, that first big passage in the salty dog, uh, we were, I don't know three or four days out of Hampton. We were across the Gulf Stream and it was 7.30 at night. We were in sloppy seas. It wasn't necessarily strong wind, but it was you know, rain, sloppy seas. Things were banging around a lot. And suddenly we were getting a bilge alarm light on the starboard motor. And I went back there with a shop vac and was sucking water out. And I was going, getting ready to dump the water over the side and the shop vac fell and went right back into the engine bay. Like, Ugh. you know, so <laughs> sucked it all back out again put the shop back up on deck. And just as I stepped in on, or, you know, uh, from the engine bay, I put it up on the deck, the, the dinghy hoist, uh, the aft part of the dinghy hoist failed and the tender fell into the water. So now it's 7.30 at night. It's, you know, again, black as the ace of spades outside. It's raining, the boat's pounding around. And now the dinghy is hanging from the davits just by the bow only. And it's just smashing Ugh. around. Yeah, didn't see that one coming. And I thought like, for a second, like, we just let the thing go, just like drop, mm. you know, you know, put a hole in it and just sink it right there. Cause I didn't know what we we're going to do. I don't know how we we're going to get it back. And we ended up putting a, uh, a, like a 50 foot tether on it and just towing it behind the boat all night long. You know, engine was down. We we're just towing it behind us. All, thought we we're going to have to divert into Bermuda and conditions eased the next morning to the degree that we could pull the dinghy alongside. And we saw that just a, a stainless steel ring had broken. You know, it was, this is a connecting ring, mm. but, you know, two hoisting lines came up to it and then it went up to the davit and this ring had literally catastrophically failed. Didn't think to check that before we left. Didn't think to have no. a spare. I mean, no. I, fortunately I had a spare on hand for some other project, but otherwise we would have been, we would have been screwed and had to figure something else out. And you might not have even been able to detect a potential failure on that Oh, you ring. can't. You, no. You know. 
you know, unless you treated it with chemical chemically or x-rayed it. And if you're down to that degree of preparation, man, you're better than I am. You're better than most. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I do remember, I know some guys before they go offshore, they do use it. I forgot what it's called, but it's a chemical treatment and they check certain areas of the rig for it's a, I think it's a two part chemical thing and it will detect a hairline fracture. That's going to cause a problem. We, we, you talked about coaching earlier. The, one of the, delivery i went to bermuda on it was the last year they did the um the caribbean 1500 oh sure it. Yeah. it was the last year he left from newport they've since only gone from virginia and gone that way and they i think they skipped bermuda the owner of the boat i was on hired steve pettengill who i actually knew from years before to kind of go over everything and steve stepped off the boat and the first thing he said was replace the furler replace the head stay and Steve Pentengill installed a whole new headstay, new furler. I'm glad he did because we got into some rough conditions and fear what would have happened had we not replaced that. We could have lost the rig. Yeah, that that is really, really scary. And when we were in Isla Mujeres, we got word through the cruiser net that there was a guy struggling. He was between Cuba and Cancun. Uh, He was in rough conditions and his headstay had parted and he had run a halyard. He was on a, I don't know, like a 38-foot monohull. He ended up making it in, but coast it was too rough for the Coast Guard to go out and get him. You know, the, the, And he was away from mm-hmm. the U.S. Coast Guard, and the, the Mexican Coast Guard said, it's too rough, we can't go get you. Those are absolute worst-case scenarios. I mean, it, when you're looking at a rig mm-hmm. coming down, people make a lot of assumptions, at least in our experience when we were looking at uh, you know, some of the cruising community. Some of the people you look at and go, yeah, I don't think you really should be offshore. And one in yeah. that boat, but two, you know, I don't think you know enough about your boat and how to fix it. Circling back to that whole Iris thing, you know, I can't stress that enough for anyone who is, uh, yeah, who is mm-hmm. going to go offshore. It is not a friendly place out there. It's not like all those YouTube videos that you see. It's not. It's not all wine and roses. Uh, the, the ocean mm-hmm. can be very, very scary. And it's in those moments that you need to have confidence in your preparation, uh, the inspection of your rigs, um, that you've done the maintenance and done due diligence. You've checked your bilges. You've, I mean, all those the, you know, the things that you're supposed to do, that you do those things. Mm. And, and if you don't, then have someone else who knows what they're doing come help you. And that's hire a coach. How do I get to, how right. do I do this? What do I need to be worried about? What am I looking at? How do I interpret weather? What should I be most concerned about with, you know, like I'm, I'm three days offshore and this happens, you know, what do I do about that? Mm. So it forces you to think through some things, but having a coach or someone experienced mentor help you with those events, it really, it, it'll give you the peace of mind you need because <laughs> two o'clock in the morning when you're going around Cape Hatteras and your, uh, and your head sail starts coming down, which is what happened to us on that last go, uh, when we helped our friends, right. um, he had not inspected his head sail and, you know, there we were off Cape cape lookout and you know two o'clock in the morning and the head sail starts coming down like okay now what yeah so and that yeah. that was another thing that we we never set out to make a youtube channel that was never our goal our mm. goal was to go have experiences as a family and push our mm. limits and sort of step through the fear that was had been holding us back and right. making videos is a full-time job. You can talk to anyone. We we, oh, we met Delos, uh, uh, sailing Delos. Uh, they were out there. Uh, there were a couple of other people who, I mean, they do amazing work. Uh, but it is a full-time sure. job making those videos. And that was never our intention. But I, and I, mm. I'll, I'll conclude with this because I had friends 
uh, who, you know, a lot of people would inquire and say, Hey, you know, you, I'm thinking about doing this and like, okay, great. You know, tell me when you're ready to do it for one thing, <laughs> right. telling me I have a dream. I, I worked for an admiral who used to say, uh, I can't resource a dream. I can resource a plan. Okay. <laughs> come to me with a plan and we can provide resources for that. But if you come to me with a, I wish one day we could, oh, okay, great. You know, tell me when you can, because otherwise you're just wasting my time. Happy to talk to you about mm. it. But if I don't have time, I'm not going to do that. But one of the things I told my friend was, look, no one out here in the cruising community is sitting around on their couch watching YouTube videos of people going to Walmart. Okay. <laughs> We're just not doing it. That's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah if exactly. this is something that yeah. you want to do, then do it. You know, there are plenty yeah. of YouTube videos out there that will inspire you. They don't tell the whole story ever. They always show the, you know, the, mm. they're heavily edited, of course. There's not the raw footage of the boat coming apart as you're going around Punta Mala, you know, stuff flying everywhere and people throwing up over the side, and, you know, fish blood and all right. you know, it's, it's, But it's. Yeah, they always share the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, oh, this is great. You look at us with cocktails and here we are and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, 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 that's not how it is. <laughs> I don't know if it was sailing. I don't know which one it was, but two years ago, the last time we had a boat show, one of them was at the Newport Boat Show and they drew the biggest crowd. Oh, that was La Vagabond. That was the Newport. Oh, La Vagabond. That was 2019. Okay, yeah. I was at that boat show and that was sailing La Vagabond. Okay. And, you know, we went down to the Annapolis boat show and we heard some, they were there as well that same year. And you know, we, some of the diehard cruisers, like the old you know, crusty ones, um, uh, who wrote storm tactics? Uh, oh shoot. Um, she's, she's huge in the sailing in the cruising community. She and her husband, gosh, anyway, she was there. She signed my copy, but she was like, ah, those people, they don't give back. <laughs> they don't give back to the sailing community. And you know, in many ways, she yeah. was right. They were in it for themselves. And a lot of people who make these YouTube videos, mm. they are very useful. And I tried to, mm. when I had the opportunity, make a YouTube video that was as informative as possible because I leveraged YouTube a lot to help troubleshoot and fix things. And so when I had the opportunity, like, hey, I'm doing engine maintenance. I'm going to walk you through what I'm doing. I'm pulling the injectors. I'm doing this, doing that. I'm going to mm. walk you through it. And maybe it would be helpful to you. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know, but mm. you know, going through the Panama Canal. Here's the Panama Canal. Here's how we did it. That was yeah, great. So, I enjoyed that. You. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was one of the, the few mm. that we did. And I've got to circle back and make some more now, but uh, it was never our intention to have a YouTube channel and develop a following and, and you know try to be influencers. There are other people who are doing that. And for no. us, it was all about yeah. you know, it, looking inward, not looking outward. There are a couple guys out, like Nick O'Kelly, uh, who he has a Leopard 46. He does some amazing, he's a former weatherman. And he's got a, he actually has a charter version 2012 Leopard 46. And he took the port, I think the port forward stateroom and turned it into a, an audio studio, like a studio. You know, he has a sound recording <laughs> studio yeah. in there and he does, a, he's got you know, a ton of GoPros and everything else. And uh, it just, yeah, yeah, he's done some incredible and I was always jealous of that. I was like, wow, that guy's doing amazing work. But I mean, I, I don't have time. I have two kids mm. on board. I mean, he doesn't have any. So no. I don't have time for that. So, and I'm not, I, yeah. I don't want any of that stuff to come back and haunt them either. Like, oh, look at you and you're on a boat. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, none of that stuff. But, yeah, yeah. You don't want that. Well, good talking yeah, with you. I appreciate you it. I really appreciate the yeah, time. Absolutely. And um, if next time you're on the East Coast, look us up. I would love to get you out here too. We're going to be out here for a while. So no rush. Yeah. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.